in the statement that the uh, resurrection of the Lord was the, the single most uh, significant event in history. I think all of us would agree to that. That changed the uh, destiny of humanity and changed history uh, forever. Uh, and I would like to suggest today that the incident we are going to study in the book of Acts is the second most significant event in all of history. Uh, there are many uh, events that could lay claim to this title. Uh, the worldwide conquest of Alexander the Great, the establishment of the Roman Empire, the conversion of Constantine, the Roman Emperor, to Christianity, the rise of Muhammad and Islam. But I think this event that we're going to study in Acts chapter 9 is the second most significant event in the history of the world. And that makes it uh, significant for us to uh, study and to understand. What Luke records for us in uh, chapter 9 of the book of Acts is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And the reason I say that this is uh, so critical is that uh, Paul was the instrument that God used to take the gospel and to spread it uh, outside the confines of Palestine and outside the confines of the Jewish religion. If it were not for the ministry of this man, then Christianity would still today be just one branch of Judaism. So every one of us in this room owe our very spiritual existence to the uh, man that we meet in this chapter. Now, Luke recognized that this was a significant event as well. He uh, devotes three chapters in the book of Acts uh, to his account of this conversion. Chapter 9, the account we have here. Chapter 22, and in chapter 26, we have Paul's account of his conversion from his own lips. So this was a significant event. Now, Luke, uh, there are two sections to his discussion of Paul's conversion, which uh, take up verses 1 through 19. The first nine verses are Paul's encounter with the Lord. And then verses 10 through 19 are Paul's encounter with a man named Ananias. Let's uh, read verses 1 and 2 to get our introduction to this story. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women... He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke uses uh, Saul's Hebrew name here. We know him as Paul. He didn't assume uh, that Greek name until his first missionary journey when he began to uh, live among Gentiles. As long as he operated in Jewish circles, he was known by his Aramaic name, which was uh, Saul. Now, we know that Saul uh, was a Pharisee, which was the strictest sect of the Jewish faith the most rigorous, the most committed to righteousness and obedience. And Paul tells us in Galatians that he himself was advancing far beyond any of his contemporaries in in Judaism, that he was the brightest uh, rising star on the uh, Jewish horizon. If he lived in America, he would be uh, someone who had done his undergraduate work at Yale and had a Harvard MBA and had just landed a, a significant executive position with Exxon. Somebody who was headed right for the top, and that's the man that we are meeting in this chapter. Now, he, uh, we know also that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, that was the Jewish Senate, the 70 leaders of the, of the nation of Israel, and he tells us in chapter 26 that when Stephen was being put to death, Paul says, I was casting my vote against him. 
So evidently he was in full agreement with the murder of this uh, innocent man, an act which he very much later came to regret. And by this time he'd already, evidently, from Ananias' words later in this chapter, had done a great deal of damage in the city of Jerusalem. He'd gone into private homes and had dragged believers out and thrown them in prison for their, for their faith. Now, the word had evidently gotten back to Jerusalem that this uh, pestilence, uh, which was known as the Way, had spread clear to Damascus. Now, it's possible that there were some Christians in Jerusalem who, in order to flee the persecution that Saul had started, had taken refuge in Damascus. It was a city outside Palestine, about 200 miles from Jerusalem, about a week's journey. And uh, having gone there for refuge themselves, they began to spread the news about Jesus the Messiah, and a brush fire had broken out in Damascus, and Saul was determined to stamp out this uh, faith wherever he found it. And so he went to the high priest and asked for letters of authority which would enable him to imprison any believers that he found in Damascus. The uh, high priest, as you know, was the in charge of internal affairs in the Jewish state, and the Romans had given them, well before this, had given to the high priest uh, extradition powers. And they, uh, the high priest had the power to extradite any criminals that he might find and have them brought back to Jerusalem. So in that power, Paul goes out to Damascus. Now, the Christians were still meeting in synagogues, evidently. Uh, Paul was going into synagogues in Damascus to find Christians. So uh, it's clear that Christians, the early Christians, the Jewish Christians, continued to meet right in the synagogues until the Jews themselves forced them out. Now, Luke continues his uh, story in verse 3. It came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. As I said, Damascus was about a week's journey from Jerusalem, a distance of about 200 miles, and Luke tells us that just as Paul was approaching the outskirts of this uh, city, significant Jewish population in Damascus. We know that from Josephus. And just as he was approaching Damascus, uh, Luke tells us that a bright light from heaven shone around him, and it was such a bright light, so brilliant and radiant, that it knocked him to the ground. <clears throat> and he tells us later that his traveling companions, likewise, were knocked to the ground by the brilliance of this light. Now, they evidently picked themselves up, but Paul remained prostrate on the ground, on his face. I don't know if any of you saw the uh, film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but if you remember that one scene where the guy's in his truck and he's pulled up to the uh, railroad crossing and he's sitting there reading his map or something, and all of a sudden the, the uh, spacecraft hovers over his uh, truck and just suddenly turns on this intense beam of light and just freezes him right in the spot. Well, something like that must have been what happened to Paul. And it had to be an extremely bright light because this happened in the middle of the day. So it was a bright enough light that even in the brightest part of the day, it was so brilliant that it blinded Paul and knocked him, knocked him to the earth. Now, Paul tells us later that the, this brilliant display of light was due to the fact that the risen Lord Jesus revealed himself to Paul. Uh, he, he, he pulled back the curtain on his uh, humanity, and Paul saw the risen Lord Jesus in all of his glory, the resurrected Lord of Nazareth, who had been crucified by the Jews. He saw him risen, uh, unveiled in all of his brilliance and his radiance. And, and that is what changed Paul uh, forever. His life could never be the same once he'd had this vision of the risen Lord. 
Now, Luke goes on to tell us that he not only saw something, but he heard something. It says, A voice said to him in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. The Lord addressed him in Aramaic here, Paul's own native language. And it's interesting, the first question that he asks Saul, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, Paul, I want you to think about this for a minute. What is motivating you to, uh, to, uh, to dish out this raging fury and this pathological hatred of, of me and my disciples? What's behind this? What's motivating this? I want you to think about this for a moment. And he says, you are persecuting me, Saul. Uh, it's interesting to see that the Lord is so identified with his people that any uh, blow that is struck against God's people is also struck against Christ, that when the church suffers, Christ suffers as well. Now, later, Paul tells us that the Lord also said to him at this point, he not only said, why are you persecuting me, but he went on to say, uh, it is difficult for you to kick against the goats. That's an agricultural term. Any of you that have worked with uh, cattle, as I have, know that one of the handiest tools uh, is a cattle prod. It's just a little thing about three feet long. It contains just battery-powered, and if you press this into the flesh of a cattle, it'll complete uh, a little circuit there, and it'll send an electrical jolt through that uh, rod, and that will uh, it hastens obedience to, the, uh, to your wishes. And uh, you use this on any uh, reluctant and uh, resistant cattle. And the Lord uses this imagery. He says, Paul, you're like, you're like one of those cattle in that pen, and I've been prodding you. And instead of going where I want you to go, you've been kicking, lashing out, just like a, a bull lashes out with its hind feet at that kind of prodding. And it suggests to us that, that all along, Paul had a sneaking suspicion that uh, Christianity really was the truth. His conscience would not be stilled, and he was trying to stifle that voice of conscience by this furious activity in which he, which he lavished his hatred against Christians. Now, you'll notice immediately the kind of change that's taken place in Paul's life. Uh, for the first time in his life, he's no longer giving orders, but he's receiving them. The Lord tells to him, Arise, enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. Uh, the first evidence of a change in Paul's life. He's no longer his own master, but he's submitted himself now to a new Lord and to a new master. His life would never be the same after this encounter. Now Luke continues his story in verse 7. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, these men that were with Paul in verse 7 were probably his uh, hired muscle to uh, help him corral these believers in Damascus, and evidently they both saw this brilliant flash of light and heard the sound of the Lord's voice, but evidently did not comprehend any of the language they just heard the sound, perhaps like the rumbling of thunder, and Saul himself was the only one that understood the words that the Lord was saying to him. So these men were naturally uh, confused. This bright light had knocked them to, their, to the ground, 
and they heard this strange noise like thunder, and yet they could not understand anything that was going on. And what's more, they saw Paul conversing to someone and must have thought the thing was exceedingly strange. And they were so surprised and that they were struck dumb, Luke tells us. Now, uh, Paul was blinded, Luke says, for three days. I consulted an ophthalmologist friend of mine this week, and he says that this kind of uh, bright light can induce uh, temporary blindness, but usually, in normal cases, it only lasts for an hour or two. I guess the brilliance of the light leaches out some of the photochemicals, photosensitive chemicals in the eyes, and then the body will gradually replenish these over a short period of time. So something like that is what happened to Saul here. The light was so bright that it did that to him, but God prolonged this period of darkness, not just for one or two hours, but for a period of three days in which Paul went without any kind of food, without any kind of drink, just in a, in a blind fog for three solid days. I think it was uh, Ray Stedman that pointed out that uh, Paul's experience in this chapter has some striking parallels to the photographic process. Uh, in, in photography, you start with film, which is kept uh, in complete darkness. And uh, it's just like the early years of Paul's life lived in spiritual darkness. And then at the right moment, that film, which has been kept in darkness, is exposed just briefly to the light. And then immediately that film is kept in the darkness again so that the image that has been revealed in that flash of light can be developed on the film. Well, that's what's happening to Paul. He's in the dark while that image, the image that he'd seen on the road, the image of Christ himself, was being developed. And when he emerged from this period of blindness, the, the image that people saw in his life was not Paul any longer, but the image of the risen Lord, the Lord that he'd encountered on the road to Damascus. Now, Luke continues in uh, verse 10 with, his, with Paul's encounter, not with the risen Lord, but now with a Christian at Damascus by the name of Ananias. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, here am I, Lord. We don't know anything about Ananias uh, other than what we find here and in Paul's other accounts in chapter 26. This Ananias evidently had a good reputation among the Jews as someone who was obedient to the law, was highly respected by the other Jews in Damascus, and the Lord picked him out to be his his vessel in this particular instance. And uh, <clears throat> we also know that these uh, that the Lord occasionally would speak to people, would communicate to them in these visions. They were... We don't know too much about them, but they were clearly some kind of visual experience. They actually saw something. It wasn't a dream, but they saw something. It was intensely vivid and intensely real. And that's how God communicated to Ananias in this situation and as well to Paul. In fact, in uh, chapter 12, Peter, who had had a vision like this in chapter 10, is being released from prison in the middle of the night. An angel has, has appeared, uh, awakened him from sleep, and is actually leading him physically out of the uh, prison gates and into the city of Jerusalem. And Peter, who had a vision in chapter 10, thought that what was happening to him in chapter 12 was a vision. It was actually physically happening to him, but Peter at first thought it was a vision. Well, that gives you an idea of how vivid and intense these, these visions must have been. And that's what Ananias had here. 
And Ananias simply says, when the Lord calls, he says, here am I. Reminds me of uh, Samuel's response to the Lord back in 1 Samuel. Remember, the Lord called to him several times, and each time uh, Samuel said, here am I. And Ananias imitates that response. So when Ananias responds, the Lord tells him in verses 11 and 12 what he wants him to do. He says, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. This uh, street called Straight, by the way, was the main street in Damascus. It's uh, still there. If you visit Damascus today, if you can get in, you can walk right down this uh, same street, still one of the main uh, thoroughfares in the city of Damascus. And there are even some tourist guides who, for a fee, will take you to what is supposed to be Ananias' very home. I think that's probably a little suspect. But nevertheless, this tradition has uh, persisted right down to this day. Now, it's interesting to me, kind of ironic, that the two men that the Lord used to bring Paul to Christ were men named Ananias and Judas. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but these were two of the most tainted names in, uh, in the early church. Ananias, the first man to be guilty of hypocrisy and deceit, and Judas, the very betrayer of the Lord. And it's ironic that in a twist, the, the Lord would use men with those very names to bring Paul to the Lord. Now, evidently, Paul's reputation had preceded him, and Ananias, in verses 13 and 14, has an understandable reluctance to uh, going to visit this man. Ananias answered, uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon thy name. Now, you can understand this. Ananias was one who called upon the name of the Lord, and here he was being instructed as one who called upon the name of the Lord to pay a personal visit to a man whose commission was to throw those type of people in jail. While the rest of his friends were hiding in cellars and attics, Ananias was not supposed to go knock on the door. You can understand that he would be a little bit reluctant to follow this advice. It would be just uh, somewhat like the Lord appearing to Menachem Begin and telling him that Yasser Arafat had invited him over for a friendly game of croquet be, uh, be a little difficult not to suspect a trap. And so uh, Ananias, uh, and I, I love the realism of Scripture, Ananias, despite the fact that this is, this is the Lord himself who is talking to him and telling him what to do, Ananias argues with him. He says, look, Lord, this is a risky proposition. And I'd really prefer uh, not to do this if it's possible. And the Lord is uh, secure enough in himself that he can take this kind of argument from Ananias or from us without getting defensive or hurt. And the Lord simply reassures Ananias in verses 15 and 16 and sends him on his way. He says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So he assures Ananias that, uh, he says to Ananias, I've already got my hand on this man. You need have no fear. He is a chosen instrument of mine. I've handpicked him for a, a worldwide ministry. He says, I've commissioned him to go to Gentiles first, 
That was Paul's major mission in life, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. That's you and me. Secondly, to take the gospel to kings. And as we read through the rest of Acts, we will see Paul continually sharing the gospel with proconsuls and consuls and governors and kings, and eventually, we believe, even the emperor of Rome himself. And then lastly, to take the gospel to his own countrymen, to the Jews. And also, it's interesting that he tells Ananias that Paul has been handpicked to suffer. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And as you read the rest of Paul's life, you see how abundantly this prophecy was fulfilled. He was uh, shipwrecked and beaten with rods and stoned and left for dead and uh, just numerous other kinds of uh, indignities Paul suffered for the remainder of his life, fulfilled this prophecy richly in his own body. So Ananias, reassured in verses 17 and 18 and 19, goes and pays a visit to Paul in Judas's home. And Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized And he took food and was strengthened. So Ananias goes with two things in mind, to restore Paul's vision, which he does, and to bestow on him the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which he likewise does. Uh, Luke says there fell from his eyes something like scales. Uh, I discovered in my study this week that this is an expression that other writers of the same time used. It's a metaphorical expression to to describe the recovery of sight. So we don't necessarily need to think that there were actual physical scales that dropped from Paul's eyes. Luke says it was something like that. It was if something like that had happened. And then the second thing that happened is that Paul was um, indwelt, was filled with the uh, Holy Spirit. It's curious, by the way, that he evidently received the Holy Spirit here before he was baptized. That's an interesting little twist. But at any rate, uh, Paul now, as a result of Ananias' vision, was a full-fledged, commissioned apostle. The two things that characterized apostles were that they had been commissioned by the risen Lord himself, personally, face-to-face, and that happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. The Lord uh, appeared to him face-to-face and commissioned him for his ministry. And secondly, they were filled with the Spirit. That was the power by which they were able to to impact the world for Christ. So Paul, as a result of his encounter with the Lord and with Ananias, is now fully equipped, uh, fully prepared to launch his apostolic ministry. And that is something that uh, we will see begun next week as David continues our study in Acts. Now, the question that uh, this leaves with us is what can we, uh, what can we learn from this uh, story about uh, Paul and his conversion? Well, there are several things I would like to draw our attention to by uh, way of lessons, personal lessons and application from this. I think the first thing that occurs to me is that there may be, uh, there may be someone or some of you in this room who, just like Paul, have been uh, kicking against the goads. The Lord has been prodding you and, and pricking you and, and nudging you in the direction of responding to the gospel, and you've been fending them off. You've been fighting them off. Well, the Lord's words to you this morning uh, is to give in, to surrender, to stop fighting, uh, to accept a new master and a new Lord for your life. I think there's a second lesson that we can learn, and this comes from the fact that Paul was converted. Um, 
Paul uh, was uh, probably the most bitter and hostile antagonist that the gospel has ever known. And it shows us that God can save even the hardest sinner, that he can touch even the most hardened heart, the most resistant and indifferent heart to the gospel. God can break through that veil of darkness and can plant a new life in the, in the soul of that person. Uh, I was uh, thinking this week of the number of very prominent people I know of who, who have a, a spiritual biography very much like Paul's, who began their lives in bitter resistance to the truth and yet were changed by an encounter with the Lord. I've been reading the uh, diaries of uh, Malcolm Muggeridge this last week. He was a very prominent journalist and uh, really a world-famous uh, uh, member of the media, both uh, television and in print. And he spent most of his life uh, very cynical and caustic about the things of Christian faith. But late in his life, uh, he uh, became a disciple of Christ and now is one of the, uh, has been in his writings over the last few years, one of the real outstanding apologists for the Christian faith. Think of uh, C.S. Lewis, who began his life as an atheist, a confirmed atheist, had nothing to do with the gospel or the scriptures. And uh, yet, uh, in uh, his early 30s, likewise had an encounter with the Lord that changed him for the rest of his life. Think of a man like uh, Chuck Colson, who certainly for his period in White House power was utterly indifferent to spiritual things, and yet the Lord was able to break through and, and to touch his life. There are even rumors, by the way, that uh, from what accounts I've read, that Nikita Khrushchev may have become a Christian later in his life, and that may have even contributed to, uh, to his downfall from power in the Soviet Union. So it's a, it's a lesson to us, uh, a reminder to us, that God can touch even the most hardened heart. And this ought to, uh, this ought to be uh, a, a source of hope for us this morning. There may be someone in your life, perhaps in your family, that you have a deep uh, burden for, a deep concern. You're, you're deeply concerned about their spiritual life. Well, this is, a, this is a reminder that you can be hopeful that God, if God can save Paul, God can save anyone. Now, secondly, or thirdly, I think we can learn from, from Paul's life uh, another lesson, and uh, that is that God can forgive even the most uh, serious and heinous sin. Uh, Paul later tells us in 1 Timothy that he was the foremost of sinners. And when Paul said that, that I am the foremost of sinners, he wasn't just blowing smoke, he really meant that. Uh, he said, there is no one that deserved the wrath of God more than I, because I tried with every fiber of my being to destroy the very church that God himself was trying to build. No one deserved God's wrath any more than I did. And yet, he says, as an example of God's patience and kindness, he has uh, forgiven me and restored me to usefulness. Now, the reminder that is to us is that, uh, that, that God can forgive us and does forgive us, no matter how... Uh, serious or uh, heinous or wicked the things we've done. Uh, there's uh, very likely to be someone here who feels you've done something so seriously wrong and uh, so sinful in your past that you have disqualified yourself from God's forgiveness and from usefulness in ministry. Well, that's not true. And Paul's lesson tells us this, that God can uh, forgive any sin and restore any of us to complete usefulness. All we need to do is to do what Paul did is to fall on our knees before the Lord and repent of what we've done. And God can restore. So that if, if God can forgive Paul, God can forgive any one of us. Now, there's a fourth lesson 
I think, that we can learn, and that comes from the example that Ananias sets for us here. I think we see in Ananias's uh, simple little cameo appearance on the stage of Scripture the real secret uh, to evangelism. Uh, and the key to evangelism in Ananias's case is summed up simply in one word, and that is his availability. The key thing that Ananias says in this entire account is, Here am I, Lord. As David pointed out last week, the main thing that God is interested in is not our ability, not our eloquence, not our education, not our intellect, but simply our availability to him. And if uh, we have that availability, he will use us to touch others. A friend of mine this week told me a story uh, that uh, happened to him just about a week ago. He was uh, leaving a community several hours from here. He just gassed up his car. And he was turning onto the freeway, and he was reminded of something that one of his friends had told him, that you ought to start each day by simply saying to God, Lord, uh, I'm available to you. Anything you want to do with me today, any way you want to use me, I'm yours. And so he uttered that simple prayer as he entered the freeway. And uh, not long after he headed toward Boise, he saw a hitchhiker by the side of the road. He was uh, dressed rather uh, shabbily, was a young man, had uh, long hair tied off on a ponytail in the back. And my friend's first impulse was just to drive on by without a second look. But something in him made him slow down and pick that hitchhiker up. And when the young man got into the car, they began a conversation. And my friend uh, found an almost instant spiritual rapport with this man. And they talked about things of the Spirit all the way uh, uh, on a drive of two hours to Boise. And during that time, my friend had an opportunity to share with this man his own personal faith and commitment to the Lord Jesus. And again, all it was was his availability. And, you know, it's striking that uh, Judas and Ananias, both of them just disappear from the scene after this. The only thing we know about Judas is that he opened his home to a stranger. The only thing we know about Ananias is that he was available to God to be used by him any way he saw fit. And so these men who never we never hear of again were used greatly by God to, to uh, convert one of the most uh, significant figures in Christian history simply by their availability. Now, there's a fifth thing I think we can learn, and with this we will close, and that has to do with the commission that the Lord gives to Paul. Uh, He lays out for Paul uh, his plan for his life, and God's plan for Paul's life is God's plan for our life. It's one and the same, in a different sphere perhaps, with different gifts, but nevertheless, God's plan for our lives is right here. First thing that he says to about Paul is that he was chosen. And that's true of each one of us this morning, that we've been chosen. We've been handpicked by God to be his children. And this is the basis for our sense of self-worth and self-confidence, that I have been chosen. I don't know if any of you have had the experience of playing sandlot softball or football, and you know when captains have been chosen and they're getting ready to choose sides, you know what a tremendous relief and encouragement it is to be one of the first ones chosen, or what a tremendous discouragement it is to be left until the last. Well, what, what God says to Paul is, I've chosen you, I've picked you, I've, I've hand-selected you to be on my team. And that's what God says to each one of us. And secondly, he says about Paul that he is an instrument, or literally a vessel. You think of what, a, what a, the purpose of a vessel is. The purpose of a vessel is simply to contain something. Vessels are always made to contain something. And we were meant to contain the very life of God. We're meant to be vessels that receive his indwelling life. 
And that's the second part of God's plan for us, to be people who on a daily basis simply allow the indwelling life of Christ to take up residence in us and to express himself through us, to clothe himself with our thinking and our feeling and live out his life and character in the midst of our, midst of our lives. And the third thing, the Lord says that Paul's plan was to bear his name before others. This is a very uh, simple thing when you think of bearing Christ's name before others. All that means is that we point others to Jesus. When opportunity presents itself, we simply tell others what Christ has done for us. It's striking as you read through the rest of the book of Acts to find that when Paul appeared before the leaders of his own country to share the gospel and appeared before the uh, Roman governor of the province of Judea, one of the kings that the Lord said he would appear before, that the method that Paul used to share the gospel was his personal testimony. You find that in chapter 22 and 26. He simply shared his personal testimony. And that's all it means to bear his name. Nothing fancy. We don't have to have a lot of scripture memorized or know a lot of theology. We simply need to be willing to tell others what Christ has done for us. That's bearing his name before others. And then the fourth plan for our lives is to suffer for his namesake. Um, very pointed contrast to some of the teaching which is abroad in the church today that God has, uh, that God's plan for every Christian is to be prosperous and to be healthy and to live life without any setbacks and any problems. Well, the Lord says to us that, that uh, the very opposite is true, that I have handpicked you uh, to suffer for my sake, that life will not be easier now that you're a Christian, but in some cases may be more difficult. And the reason is quite simple. Paul tells us himself in 2 Corinthians 10 that the, the lessons that Paul learned, the great lesson that he learned in times of hardship and suffering was that God's grace was sufficient for him. He says, that's what God told me. In a time of trouble, I wanted him to change my circumstances, and God's words to me instead were, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. So Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, about my difficulties, about my hardships, in order that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And the great secret that Paul learned was that when I am weak, then I am strong. It's in our times of weakness and frailty and inadequacy that we are the the most dependent upon God's resource. And that's when we are truly the strongest because we are depending not upon ourselves but upon the strong one. So that's what we can take from this lesson, I think. Uh, first of all, I think we can go from here hopeful about those around us that need the Lord. We can go out from here uh, forgiven, just as Paul was forgiven. Uh, we can go out from here available to God this week to be used any way he sees fit and go out from here dependent upon his power and resource in times of hardship. Let's uh, stand and conclude in prayer. Lord, we thank you for uh, your grace, which uh, breaks down even the strongest barriers and was strong enough to break down the pride and the arrogance and the stubbornness of a man like Paul and make him into one of your choice instruments. We pray that you will send us out uh, from here, Lord, available to you uh, with a great sense of our forgiveness, our chosenness by you, and a simple desire to bear your name before others. Give us the grace to handle uh, suffering 
and hardship uh, out of dependence upon you. Uh, reveal in us, manifest in us your life of strength and power this week before others. We thank you for your provision for us in Christ's name. Amen.